First off, a confession. I've wanted to work in government and foreign policy since probably middle school, but the last time I was hunting around for a position towards the end of the Obama administration, I felt a little awkward about it. Sure, I was smart and competent and had read a lot, but young people like that are a dime a dozen in DC. Sports analytics has this concept called value over replacement player, which attempts to get at how much any one player would contribute to the team over the average talent at their position. Back then, my foreign policy staffer VORP score wasn't all that impressive. Fast forward four years later, and thanks to my experience in China and time making this podcast and newsletter, that's changed. There are very few people in my age cohort who have a deep understanding of both China tech issues and U.S. instruments of power. Given the importance of this issue set and the contribution I think I could make, I feel comfortable making the hard sell now. If you or any of your friends are looking for a special assistant or policy advisor and stay state at SP, EB, or EAP, Commerce and BIS, Treasury and International Affairs, or OSTP, or anywhere else my background might be put to good use, do keep me in mind. Now, on with the show. What will a Biden administration foreign policy look like? What's going to happen on tech and trade? How will debates within the Democratic Party on what to do about China shake out? Where will Congress be on these set of issues? And how will Biden the man impact foreign policy? To discuss, we have on the person who's taught me the most about American politics, David Gordon, currently a senior advisor at IISS. Previously, he was my boss at the Eurasia Group, served as a director of policy planning under Condoleezza Rice at the State Department, and was acting chairman of the National Intelligence Council, among many other positions in a multi-decade career in the IC. January 2021, what is U.S.-China relations? So I think there's going to be a lot of overlap between a Trump administration, what they've done and been doing, and, and a Biden administration. So I think that, as is always the case in changes in administration, the, the tone often changes, the, the, the language often changes, but generally there, there is a lot of continuity. And I think this time around, there's going to be a lot of continuity on China that in the U.S. in the last particularly two and a half or three years, I think there has been a a growing sense that a tougher China policy should be on the agenda. So while I think there was Uh, a lot of skepticism, certainly among Democrat foreign policy types around the trade war. There has been broad support among Democratic foreign policy analysts on the pushback on tech. So I think the pushback on tech will definitely continue. Now, where will it be located? Who will take the lead? in all of this, what of the details might be different, too soon to know. But I do think that while the Trump administration put a lot of energy into building an international coalition on tech, it did so in typical Trumpian ways of, you better be with me or we'll screw you on this. So I actually think that the latent potential for building up a a pretty broad coalition on tech, particularly on 5G, is quite strong. So the relative hardline-ness 
of a Biden administration vis-a-vis China is something a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about. And so we have, I would say, leading the pack, the, the Eli Ratners of the world who are have been like most explicit maybe for the longest time, starting maybe early 2019, my think tank affiliation talking about the China challenge and America rising to it and what have you. Perhaps a little bit less aggressive if you read between the lines of public statements. You look at maybe a Michelle Flournoy, who, while acknowledging it, you also see some sort of statements where she says maybe what we're doing vis-a-vis Chinese technology is too aggressive. She was supposed to come on the podcast this past Friday, but postponed. Hopefully, we'll still get her on to, to ask her directly. But I'm curious, David, it's not entirely united um, so then the way to get at where all these chips are going to fall is you look at the external forces and also you look at what the president thinks. So maybe if you want to look at, take a sentence at those two, maybe how public opinion, Congress, and like where you think Biden himself's head is at on these issues. Yeah. So it's a great question. So given the fact that the Dems did not do very well down ticket. And the fact that I think the odds of the Dems taking the two Georgia Senate seats in the January 5th by-election are really pretty low. They may get one of them, but I would be very surprised if they got both. So I think there's almost a 90% likelihood that we are looking at a Republican Senate. In that circumstance, I think one of the themes that is gonna be pretty attractive to a Biden administration, both in policy terms and political terms, is emphasizing standing up to China. And that's, that doesn't just have to do with tech, but I think tech will be at the very top of this because Biden could very well cast many of his domestic programs, infrastructure development, rebuilding America, all of this for which he's going to need Republican support. If you cast all of this as part of a making America strong at home enough to take on China, that will probably get some traction for him. Interesting. The Kurt Campbell on a think tank event the other day said, you won't have to wait too long before you start seeing pre-K be framed as an anti-China initiative. Exactly. <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. Uh, so, right. So, so I think the policy, so I completely agree with the sentiment behind it. I think the politics of this definitely leads to an increasing emphasis on this. So structurally, I, I would really highlight this that a, a Biden presidency with a close Senate, but one that's still in Republican hands, really leads to a strong political incentive for him to go down that path. So I think that's going to be one really important factor. The, the, the second theme here is that, you know, if you're Biden looking at a Trump foreign policy, there's a lot that you're going to set yourself against, particularly with alliances, climate change, and probably even trade to a substantial degree. But a couple of things you're going to want to build on, and one was the success that Trump had in putting together this coalition around 
tech targeting Huawei, but focused on 5G. And the other one is the, the Gulf states making peace with Israel. So I, I do think that these are, are themes that w- will be built upon. I do think people are important. So I think it's pretty unlikely that Kurt Campbell is going to rejoin government, but I think it's extremely unlikely that Eli Ratner won't get something very important. Uh, And it almost certainly will have a lot to do with China. If you're really looking for a signal early that the Biden administration is going to be different from the Trump administration on China technology to a substantial degree, I think looking at is Eli Ratner in the administration in a significant China role will be one of your important signals. If the answer to that is no, then maybe that hypothesis could be correct. One of the things you raised was trade policy, which is going to be a really interesting thing for the Democrats to navigate. So on trade policy, so Biden has talked about unilaterally lifting tariffs. I don't think we're going to see much of that vis-a-vis China. He may do some unilateral lifting of tariffs with U.S. allies. I think one of the big themes that's going to be different between the Biden administration and the Trump administration is I think Biden goes back to that the older policy of you give America's allies a little more leeway in trade negotiations. And Trump completely moved away from that. But the China piece is an interesting one. So I don't think he's going to unilaterally give up very much, if anything, on tariffs. On the other hand, I think he will want to engage China in a new set of negotiations on the trade side. So I would suspect that China is going to be his priority for trade negotiations. It's not going to be Europe. It's not going to be the UK. It's not going to be TPP. It is going to be China. The the challenge here is that what he's going to be looking for, frankly, in most cases, is also going to be pretty similar to what the Trump administration was looking for in the comprehensive trade negotiations between Lighthizer and Liu He. The the one big difference is going to be that Trump himself was a tariff guy. Biden is not a tariff guy. So I think that the Biden administration will be willing to put much more on the table in terms of things that could look good for China than would the Trump administration. So I think the prospects here are somewhat higher. But again, if you go back to the comprehensive negotiations that fell apart in the spring of 2019, that the failure of the Chinese to be able to negotiate that successfully is something that the Biden people are going to be very aware of. So this is not going to be an easy negotiation, but I do believe that 
this is one of two or three areas where the Biden administration is really going to make a very serious push at doing something to offset geopolitical tensions and technology tension. So you you, you mentioned you were bearish on, you know, what, what some people have been talking about is like, we're going to do multilateral everything. And that includes trade deal. Um, why, why don't you think that's going to be, uh, that's necessarily in the cards? Yes. So yeah, I just think that the Biden administration's priorities are going to be 90% domestic. They're going to be 90% domestic and they're not going to be around trade. And I think to the extent that they're around trade, they're around the ongoing trade issues that were put in play by the Trump administration on China rather than anything else. That makes sense. And it's also just, you just, the politics on trade are really hard. And Biden- politics on trade are always hard. That's yeah. right. And they're not going to be easier. And that's why I think that Biden will try to do something with China, which the ironically, the domestic politics of that might be easier than some of the others. It's interesting because that's the the congressional dynamic historically has been the executive has tried to be easier, uh, has wanted to have friendlier relations than Congress was comfortable with vis-a-vis China and other sort of like, you know, human rights offender type countries. So So one of the interesting questions, Jordan, is the degree to which human rights issues are going to come into play for a Biden administration. And the immediate one here is going to be a bear for Biden, and that's Hong Kong, because I just don't see what the instruments are that the U.S. has to really, in a meaningful way, shift the dynamics on Hong Kong, which are leading to I think a, a, a quite rapid incorporation of Hong Kong more directly into the Chinese polity and a loss substantially of Hong Kong's status as a financial center and as the entrepot to China. And even the asylum stuff, it, it's hard to make that work if people can't leave Hong Kong. Exactly. Here's where you're getting, I think, the first really serious, obvious example of the reconnaissance state, right? That I'm sure China has eyes and ears on all of the key activists and is just not going to let them leave. They're not going to be able to get to any embassy to seek asylum. The 2022 Olympics is going to be a really interesting moment and potential forcing function for all of this. 2022 Olympics is going to be very interesting. I, I was I visited the uh, so in Be- so they have half the stuff around the mountains, but they also have a complex in Beijing, and it's it's beautiful. They redid this whole like industrial era, and there are all these like repurposed factories, and it's much more walkable and not as like monumental and ugly as some of the 2008 stuff. So I don't know. I'm not going to be there, but I'm still I don't know. It'll be two or three senators starting to talk about it. And I think as it gets closer, a lot of EU countries as well, you'll see, you'll see movements. Oh yeah, to, no, uh, I think it's, this is going to be quite different from 2008. I was in government in 2008 and th- there was pressure on President Bush not to go and all of this, but he said, this is such 
an important event for the Chinese people that the Chinese people would take it as an insult if I didn't go. And that would hurt the United States. And I think that was the right decision to have made. The China of 2008, pre-Xi Jinping, is a pretty different China. It's also, it's the Winter Olympics, whatever. It's not as big a deal. NHL's not even going to be there. Anyways, so coming to the repairing allies seems to be the theme. I'm curious to what extent you think that is even possible. What should they be doing? And how would you gauge the appetite of uh, allied countries around the world for renewing what you, yeah. what relationships used to look like? Yeah, so... I think the appetite in Asia is very strong. So I think in Asia, particularly South Korea, that had a really rough time with the Trump administration, I think they're very keen to improve relations with the United States. I think in Japan, the the enthusiasm around the U.S. alliance is probably stronger than it's ever been. And then you get you have the countries in Asia where China has dramatically misplayed its hand, and they're more active now and much more forcefully engaged and interested in alliance relationships in that category, the two key countries, of course, are Australia and India. The Chinese move in the Himalayas has led to this dramatic and quite rapid shift in attitudes in India towards China and conversely in attitudes towards much closer ties with the U.S. and other Asian U.S. allies. David, the app I was working on in China got banned in India, tragically. Yeah, yeah. That's... It's just the peak, just the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg, yeah. So India has moved really rapidly to seek much more closer security ties with the U.S. Now, there's still, I think, the longstanding Indian opposition to formal alliances remains in place. But... The Quad, this informal alliance relationship among India, Japan, Australia, and the U.S., I think the Quad really gets built up. And I, I see the Indians here are critical. They, they're a major military power, and they're a military power that historically always saw itself as an independent actor. And I think that the Indian Navy has long been ahead of the curve here, seeing its long-term relationships with the West and with U.S. allies. But I think the whole of the Indian security establishment is now making that shift. That's really significant. If you look at defense spending in Asia, If you add India to all of the other U.S. allies in Asia, the joint defense spending there is pretty parallel to what China spends on defense. So this notion of an inability of 
the inability to build a, an effective balancing defensive coalition, I think is wrong. I think we can and will build that, particularly if the U.S. remains committed to being an active player here. That's really interesting. The, the issue I think that's going to come to the fore sooner rather than later, and the big, I think, challenge in Asia is going to be Taiwan, because I do believe that China is getting much more serious about the, the need for a military action to take Taiwan. I think the fact that they have been willing to move so far, so fast in Hong Kong signals that they're really giving up on the theme of one country, two systems. When Deng Xiaoping articulated that concept, he was articulating it not just for Hong Kong, but also for Taiwan. The worry here is really about Taiwan. And, you know, that will be the focal point. I think that there's no question that the U.S. will continue to put a priority on technologies that emphasize U.S. defense in the face of Chinese weaponry that is increasingly capable of interdicting a U.S. force that is moving from U.S. bases in the Pacific to engage more actively in a Taiwan defense. Yeah, no, it's a really hard question. And some of Michelle Flournoy's past writing has basically looked at the coming austerity, uh, which is likely to hit the Defense Department in the wake of a global pandemic, as being a bit of a forcing function for these sorts of hard decisions, because the carrier hanging out in Honolulu is not going to do the trick. Carrier hanging out in Honolulu is not going to do the trick. But you've already seen, it's quite interesting to me that the Marine Corps, which was really the element of the military that had gone the most all in on counterinsurgency, counter counterterrorism engagements. The Marine Corps is now thinking of itself and beginning to develop concepts to be the leading edge of a force that can be deployed in various parts of Asia as a counter to Chinese forces. And so that's a big change. So here's a question for you, David. You were in government back when we still had great power conflict and have lived through the 30 years of not that in counterinsurgency and all this stuff in the Middle East and South Asia. And now we see Congress and the executive branch and the IC and the military and and the State Department all trying to work their way back towards the sort of muscles that have really atrophied over the past 30 years. So I'm curious, I don't know, you can take this any direction you want. Like, what's your sense of it? What lessons do you have? How are they going to overreach? What do you what do you think is important to keep in mind as we adjust out of the the counterterrorism era and into this Um, great power competition time. Yeah, so I think the most important point here is that China isn't the Soviet Union. And the U.S. relationship with 
China isn't the U.S. relationship with the Soviet Union. So on the China isn't the Soviet Union, it's that China much more dynamic, much more engaged broadly, globally, in all sorts of commercial endeavors, scientific endeavors, financial endeavors. The Soviet Union had its sphere of influence, but beyond its sphere of influence, it had very little in terms of relationships. So the U.S.-China relationship is also exceptionally deep, particularly on the economic side. And so while I do think that some decoupling on the technology side is both the right thing to do and doable, broadly, decoupling is not a strategy that is going to get us where we need to go with China. And so recognizing those two key differences is going to be central to getting the China challenge right. I think this is a very long-term challenge, but because uh, of the much more highly integrated nature of China's relations with the rest of the world and of U.S. relations with China, and because of so many of the large, tough issues that face the world, from climate change to infectious diseases to migration, really need to have China on board, that the approach of isolating and decoupling is really not going to make a lot of sense. So I think we are going to want to keep up both the strengths that we have in terms of both military technology and larger technologies. The one thing that troubles me a lot about the U.S. debate around China and China technology is if you read the newspapers or you just listen to people on TV, I think the notion is that China's ahead of us on technology. Nothing could be further from the truth. They're not a little behind, they're substantially behind. I think the, the, the notion that we're in something in which the stakes are very immediate and very high, I think are, are very often overstated. On the other hand, this is the principal challenge of our, our time is both being able to compete with China, but also avoiding a conflict with China. So both of those need to be the signposts here for the United States. And I'm struck by the advantage that the U.S. has, and I think will continue to have over China, in terms of its ability to work with other countries as partners. Whereas China has nothing in its history, in its very long history, of working effectively on a partnership basis. And I think what we've seen even in the last year is a signal of how hard it is for China to do partnership relationships that are more balanced. So 
Coming back to something you spoke to earlier, the finding the golden mean here of being motivated enough to uh, spend money on investing in science and technology and potentially like uh, hurting you know, some some factories in America because we need to be friends with our allies because China's around while at the same time not blowing it up into this true 1962 Cold War mentality where you throw away a lot of the circuit breakers and the kind of mutually beneficial economic interaction that the U.S. and China has is something I'm worried is impossible given our democracy and the sort of dynamics at play, particularly in Congress, when it comes to this sort of thing. I'm curious if you're, and you also, as a knock-on effect, you get all the whole McCarthyism type stuff, which you're seeing at the fringes now with the, you know, racial slurs and the attacks on the street, but this could get much, much, much worse. So that is a legitimate concern. Can I say I'm confident we're going to get this right? I believe that we will. But there is definitely a chance that we won't. So this is definitely not something that is going to be easy to do. It's also something that doesn't just depend on what we do, because it also depends on what China does and on what the Chinese leadership does. And that's why I think that looking back just not all that many years to the to the early days of of President Xi Jinping's rule, people in the West were optimistic about Xi Jinping, that he was dynamic, he was going to be a reformer, he believed in the private sector, all of this. And in fact, he's much more authoritarian than China's recent leaders, and he is much more adventuresome than China's recent leaders. The Ant Financial thing was such a Putin move. It was, oh, this this guy's getting a little too big for his britches now. I mean, it's fascinating. The Ant Financial thing was a very big Putin move. I'm glad that you raised this. In 2004 or 2005, I forget the year, Putin began his move against the country's richest businessman, and most globally successful business. That's, this is Mikhail Khodorkovsky and Yukos. And there are definitely shades of this in the move against Ant Financial. 25 years later, there isn't a single Russian company that has the global presence and the global reputation that Yukos had. So not only did Putin destroy China's biggest and most promising company, there hasn't begun to be a competitor to that. And I think the financial thing is so interesting because it really raises this interesting tension. In 2015 and 2016, Jordan, President Xi moved to really limit the potential for all sorts of Chinese businesses to invest in the West and other parts of the world and to move money back to China. But at that point, he was promoting the growth of the big technology companies. But now the big technology companies are huge players on their own. But if you're thinking about a company whose international 
deployment and success would redound the most to China's strategic benefit, I think Ant Financial might even be ahead of Huawei because they're involved in payment systems and in high-tech payment systems. China's very interested in being able to weaken the leverage of U.S. dominance of the formal financial system and formal financial instruments in the world. Taking Alipay global, you would think that would be the way to do it, except it involves allowing a private company to get very big and very strong. It will be really interesting to see if there ever is an ant IPO. If I had to place my money now, I don't think it'll ever happen. It's it's a fascinating relationship we has with these people. I'm sure he's not like a particularly big personal fan of the new generation as well, but there's also I think in the cohort younger than Mayun, no one who's willing to do the sort of thing that he did in terms of having the gumption to to use his own words against him in that speech and do it in such a sort of charismatic way. I think that sort of the rest of the cohort of the up-and-coming billionaires, even though most of them in their hearts, they've spent more time. Mayun is one of the first people to spend time in the West who became a billionaire, but most of the other, a lot of the other billionaires have worked at Microsoft and, you know, gone to UC Berkeley to get their uh, CS master's degree. Maybe it's, it's a bit of a generational thing, and it's also seeing enough people's heads lopped off to understand that this is just not a game they're interested in playing. And to watch the sort of demonstration effect of this will be a fascinating story to follow. I want to come back to Biden as a person. You've been watching him uh, for years. Let's say we multiple decades. Uh, David has been uh, involved in this sort of issue. So I'm curious if you could just do a little reflection on him as a uh, as a president, as a foreign policy thinker, and and what do you you know what, what sort of mindset is he take this uh, to the issue set? So I very much see Joe Biden as the right person for this time. That he's a very serious guy. He's empathetic. He he's gone through very tough times. He is quite balanced. And I think, importantly, he uh, is somebody who can both build the kind of domestic trust and domestic alliances that he will need, and he will be good at foreign policy and foreign affairs. Now, Biden has been a better diplomat than he has a foreign policy thinker. I think that a lot of the ideas that he's raised over the years, he was the one who who wanted to divide Iraq into three separate countries, which would have absolutely created a disastrous situation in that part of the world. So I don't think that his ideas are necessarily great, but his instincts are good. His instincts are good. He's always had a very competent and high quality staff. He has always led that staff to work effectively with others. He had really important bipartisan relationships in the Senate, most importantly with Senator John McCain. So I think that all of these are going to bode well for him 
as president. I think, you know, the China issue is going to be the issue for him. And how will he handle it? There is going to be a lot of different interests in play here in his administration. I think the business community and the financial community will come in and really try to seek a lowering of tensions. He'll be, he will want to do that. But then the question is, how do you do that while maintaining the focal point on technology. I think Biden will try to put together some form of multilateral public-private partnership on creating an alternative or several alternatives to Huawei on the 5G rollout. And I just thought it was unlikely that President Trump would have, would create an administration that had the competence to do that, even though he'd be interested in doing it. So I'm reasonably optimistic about Biden presidency. And he also will have to develop some kind of a relationship with Xi Jinping. That's the wild card here. David Gordon, thank you so much for coming on China. Jordan, my pleasure. I enjoyed it as always.
法离开的教室。